0: Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective 2020 on Vision
1: A special focus today on fulfillment of biblical prophecy in the restoration of the nation of Israel. And so for students of the Bible and those watching the unfolding of significant fulfillment of biblical prophecy, there are more and more things to learn about these developments. Kelvin Crobby is joining us. He's founder of Heritage Resources. He spent almost 25 years living in Israel before returning home to Perth in WA. Kelvin was based at Christ Church in the old city of Jerusalem, and he's developed an intimate and... Profound knowledge about the history and the restoration of Israel, and particularly the role of the Anzacs in that restoration. So we've got this Australian connection here, which we're going to unpack a little of. He is one of the keynote speakers at a seminar that's on this weekend for listeners who might be around the Southeast Queensland area this Saturday, the Israel Restoration Seminar in Brisbane. We'll talk about that as we go along too, but for listeners in Southeast Queensland, uh, you'll be able to see Kelvin speak and in more depth than what we'll be able to cover today. I do want to invite you to be part of our conversation. We'll open our talkback lines in just a few moments one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. 316 316 You might have a question about the sorts of things we're talking about when it comes to Bible prophecy fulfillment. You might also like to leave a question or a comment on our Facebook page. You can simply go to facebook.com forward slash vision radio. But a special welcome back to 2020 to you, Kelvin Crombie. Thank you, Neil. Good to be here with you. Kelvin, these days you're back home in Perth, but you spent 25 years living in Israel, and while you were there, you immersed yourself into the developments that were going on with the people of Israel as people from all over the world were beginning to return to Israel. Now, this return to Israel, a incredibly impressive and exciting thing in light of biblical prophecy. But let's start with an Aussie connection as we come to what's been happening with what we'd call a restoration of Israel. And it was only just late last year, and I know you were there at the reenactment and the major celebrations of Australia's light horse 100th anniversary uh, of the charge on Beersheba in Israel. And this is a connection for Australia to what's been unfolding in Israel. Uh, It is such a significant thing, and people will have it very freshly in their own minds.
2: Yes, uh, the event last October was actually quite uh, interesting, important, and exhilarating and everything. It was actually two parts of a whole, two sides of a coin, Neil, because on the 31st of October 1917, you did indeed have a combined British, New Zealand, and Australian attack upon Beersheba, as you would call it, Beersheba, as it's known of out out there. Uh, and some people call it the place of seven beers, beer, Sheba, Sheba mm-hmm. being both oath and seven. So it depends where you're coming from, of course, but let's just call it beer, Sheba. Uh, it was combined effort by the British, the New Zealanders, and the Australians. Most Australians think we were the only ones there, but um, no, the others were there as well and did their bit, actually.
1: There's a little bit of Australian pride in, in that idea. But of there course, when we actual- say ANZAC, we're including the New Zealanders. That's right. But um, the British are in
2: there as well. Oh, the British did most of the fighting at Beshevra, in actual fact. The Most of the casualties that day were actually British casualties. Um, but the Australians, uh, their role was to actually take the town that was in the orders given by General Allenby and of course, the New Zealanders were primarily involved in taking the ancient Beersheba, Tel El Saba, as we call it. Uh, and if Tel El Saba hadn't been captured by the New Zealanders and some Australians, then there would have been no charge. So it really was a team effort. But the final, the finale, grand finale, as you might want to say, was actually attributed to the, to the charge of the Australian Light Horse. And that was a, an important event. So that's one of the events which took place on the 31st of October 1917, but there was another one which happened at almost the same time as the the charge, and that was what took place in the War Cabinet meeting in London where they were discussing the proposal by the Zionist organisation for the establishment of a Jewish national entity in Palestine. And the vote was then taken about the same time as the charge was taking place, two hours different so approximately. The vote was then taken by the British War Cabinet uh, in favour of accepting this proposal by the Jewish uh, Zionist organisation. And that became known as the Balfour Declaration. Many people attribute it to the 2nd of November. And that's only when the letter was uh, sent from Lord Balfour to Lord Rothschild. The actual decision was made at a War Cabinet meeting on the 31st of October at about the same time as the charge was
1: taking place. So you've got two sides of a coin Now, clear this up for me, Kelvin, because sometimes when we talk about the Balfour Declaration, the War Cabinet meeting decision that was made, and the charge on Beersheba, is this something that they received word at the War Cabinet that Beersheba had fallen Uh, Or, uh, or is it the case that uh, that is somehow rather, uh, you know, accidental? uh, Or I'm not sure that's a very good word when you talk about the way these decisions happen. But, but it wasn't uh, reliant on the fact that Beersheba had fallen. No, the decision
2: for the war cabinet meeting had been made before. In fact, they were they had planned to discuss this issue a week or two previous. At their war cabinet meeting and it didn't take place for various reasons so it was actually deferred to the 31st of october and of course the Z day the day that they were going to attack Beersheva, had already been um set up you know weeks before because they had to begin to plan systematically for the attack upon Um but it wasn't synchronized to be the 31st of october even though 31st of october is reformation day Okay, so on that day, it was going to be 400 years since Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, uh, 31st of October 1517. So no, there was no correlation there, as far as I'm aware. And it was also the 31st of October 1898 when the German Kaiser Wilhelm II entered into Jerusalem to open the new German church, which was to consolidate German Germany's um, involvement with Turkey. So all sorts of things happened on the 31st of October, but they were just things that happened on the same day. And interestingly enough, fighting between the Allies and the Turks ended on the 31st of October 1918. But I don't think they did that purposely because it's one year after Beersheba. So five things which happened on the same day. Coincidentally, you might say.
1: Uh, Yes, and I don't know uh, that we ought to put so much emphasis on all of the coincidences although some people will say coincidence is the name God uses uh, when he wants to remain a little anonymous. So these things did happen, and the fact that they did happen on the same day, there were anniversaries like that, certainly gives us uh, real substance to talk about some of these events and the way that they are interacting with one another. The interesting and important point, I think, here is that this is not just something that uh, we as Christians, as church people, uh, talking about, you know, in the shadows, on the side. Because when it came to that 100th anniversary of the light horse charge on 'er Beersheba, we had the Israeli Prime Minister who turned out and made it a significant part of the history of the nation of Israel uh, that this event had happened. So uh, Aussies are connected there, not because of some coincidence, but here is the Israeli Prime Minister who recognizes that in the history of the Jewish people, Australians have played a role.
2: Yes, um, Bibi was there, Netanyahu was there, and Mr. Turnbull was there, and also the New Zealand Governor General, Mrs. Kerr, was there as well. Um, but I'd say that, you know, people such as myself had been involved on the ground in developing this whole thing for something like 30 years. I took my first little. Uh, light horse tour down to Beersheba in 1988 from, from Christchurch in Jerusalem down to there. And in those days, the interest level was very, very small. There was a, f- a few Israeli academics and historians and ac- uh, military historians who were interested. But it took a long time to actually get that uh, perspective and that vision to to go out. And so through 30 years, we actually had to work quite hard to get to the point of what happened in 31st of October last year. But it was great to see the outcome. I mean, as you know, we did uh, the first of these major reenactments. We did in two thousand and seven. That sort of set the tone. That really got the interest level. And um, so Bibi Netanyahu being there and Mr Turnbull being there was as a result, I think, of the things that have happened in in the previous years. And it was something that did um, infuse uh, interest amongst the Israeli population because. How often do you actually see a foreign country um, coming in and, and doing an event like this? In actual fact, you never see it. We were told that when we did the event in 2007, that was the first occasion that such a thing had happened. You know, 50 Australians riding in on horses, reenacting a charge in 1917. The Israelis had said, sort I've of never heard that because their um, their interest in what foreign armies had been doing was usually quite negative, you know, even with the British. When the British left in forty eight, it was left a negative impression so this was actually quite something fresh and different for the israelis and it just got their their interest And we just saw the outcome of that this year where the the crowds were perhaps five times as, as great as they were in 2007 and we had the participation of these prime ministers and governor general uh, and there were quite a few things happening behind the scenes of course which the average person who was there observing it wasn't wasn't aware of so it was a A lot of miracles happen to get us to
1: that point. Kelvin, let's come to the Bible and fulfillment of biblical prophecy because if we're going to have a conversation like this today, it's all very well to talk about events that happened 101 years ago, almost 100 and a half years ago. But let's come back to those things that we might read in the Bible and see a fulfillment in our own day. And for a lot of people, this is like, oh, that must be very obscure. But uh, there's not a lot of obscurity when I've looked at those passages uh, and seen – the fulfillment of uh, biblical prophecy all around the reformation of the nation of Israel because uh, since uh, AD 70, uh, the Israelis uh, were dispersed into all other parts of the world. They'd lost their nation. They were gone. Uh, But all of a sudden, you've got this return, all of a sudden, 70 years ago. But let's come back into the Bible and what the Bible says prophetically about the nation of Israel. What are your thoughts?
2: Well, first of all, um the restoration isn't 70 years old. It's 70 years since the State of Israel was established. But the State of Israel was built upon a foundation that was laid over a period of, I'd say, 400 years. And you can't understand 14th of May 1948 without looking at events which were taking place slowly, slowly over a period of, let's say, 400 years. And what had happened in those 400-year period, and we'll try to fleece this out a bit, in, flesh it out a bit in the, in the conference, those things which happened in that 400-year period um, leading up to 1948, let's say, were built upon foundations that were laid in the Scriptures, principles that you see in the Scriptures, mostly relating to the time of the first exile and restoration. But we first, we before we get there, there's a very, very important foundation we actually have to lay. Why is the restoration of Israel important? Is it for the sake of the Jewish people? Is it for the sake of biblical prophecy being fulfilled and lots of other issues as well? Um, I'd say it is those, but that is not the real reason. The real reason why the restoration of Israel is important is because it points to the character of God. It's for the um for the character of God Almighty because he swore an oath. And so it's his word that has actually gone into this very foundation. He swore an oath to Abraham, confirmed it to Isaac and to Jacob concerning the land of Israel. It's one of those covenant promises that you see uh, written there in Genesis 12. And so if there is a God in heaven who uh, makes a promise, seals it with an oath, then it's his character that is at stake if that oath uh, is not fulfilled, if, if his word is, is shown to be actually um, broken, so he, for the sake of his own character, Israel has to be restored um, because otherwise he makes a promise and then he breaks it, and that's not the character
1: of the God I think that we we serve. So God doesn't break his oaths; he in fact shows himself faithful, and if he shows himself faithful to his chosen people, the people of Israel. Uh, then we as Christian believers who'd see ourselves as grafted in would recognise that he'll show himself faithful to the promises that he's made to all of those who are uh, brought into his family.
0: Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision.
1: Talking about Bible prophecy today, our special guest is Kelvin Crombie. Kelvin is in fact one of the keynote speakers at a seminar that is on this weekend in Brisbane. So for those listeners in south-east Queensland, you might like to attend the Saturday seminar, Israel Restoration Seminar, it's called. It's on in Brisbane. It'll be on at 289 Preston Road, Wynnum West, And there is a website, israelrestoration.wixsite.com forward slash Israel. Uh, We'll talk about more how you can find some more details shortly. Kelvin Crombie, as we talk about Israel in Bible prophecy and to talk about Israel as a fulfillment of Bible prophecy today, there are some other things that we need to understand. And this is something that has happened before. In the life of Israel, going back to the exile that we read about in the Old Testament. So, to
2: understand, I think the second restoration, which Isaiah pointed out in, in chapter eleven, also there would be a return a second time. It's important to look at some principles which took place at the time of the first exile and restoration. But first of all, we have a, we've already looked previously at the, the character of God is revealed in Him swearing the oath which basically confirmed the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then later, of course, there was a, another separate covenant that was cut with the Israelites in the Sinai called the Sinai Mosaic Covenant, which provided the constitution for how they were to live in the land of Israel. And it's very, very clearly stated there, and Leviticus 26 does this beautifully, but other places as well, that there were blessings for obeying the, God's constitution, called his Torah or his law. There were blessings for obeying it, and there were curses um, for disobeying it. So that's all set there. But at one particular point in, for instance, Leviticus makes it very clear that if there's gross disobedience to God's constitution, his Torah, they would be exiled from the land. And it seems to to show in that that when they're in um, in exile, that if they call upon him, if they re- repent, recant, and come back to him, then he will restore them. That's what it seems to to show in Leviticus uh, 26. So it, there came a time, of course, when the northern kingdom entered into gross disobedience and they were taken away into Assyrian uh, exile. But there were many people from the northern tribes by this stage were living amongst the southern tribes. And then with the Babylonians, they were taken into exile because of gross covenant disobedience. So there they were in Babylon. And it doesn't seem to be much an indication, as when I read the scriptures, that suddenly as a nation, They all repented and turned back and were um, um, doing the right thing. It seems to be that they were living there and it didn't seem to be a huge deal of difference until there was a gentleman called Daniel who read the prophecy uh, or read the letter from Jeremiah who said that they would be in exile for 70 years. And so what happened then is that uh, Jeremiah reminded God of what, sorry, Daniel reminded God of what he'd spoken to, to Jeremiah. And then we see a restoration happening after that. So we see Daniel as the archetype intercessor. He reminded God of his covenant promises. Now, that in itself is an important principle for us to take on board when we start talking about the second period of the restoration. But let's just look at this role of, of Daniel for a second. And there's a precedent for that because in the time of the Sinai wanderings, for instance, there were uh, several occasions, one soon after the um, the golden calf episode but there are several occasions where God actually had a bellyful of the Israelites to put it in colloquial language and he had, on one stage sort of said to Moses stand aside I'm going to wipe that mob out and I'm going to start again with you Moses because you're a good bloke um, as for the rest well they're just all stubborn and stiff-necked and whatever else and so that's what God was planning to do. But it was Moses who then reminded God and said, no, you can't do that, God, because you have sworn an oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so God kept on with the Israelites. So he continued with his purposes for the nation, even though there was only a remnant who were, you might say, righteous. Let's look at Moses and perhaps Aaron. The majority were not. So there you got a principle. It's very important. So we put that over now into the period of the first exile when Daniel was there. Now, in a sense, whether the rest of the people were living similar to Daniel or not, I don't know. But Daniel had a relationship with the Lord and he then interceded on behalf of his nation. He reminded God of those promises, as did Nehemiah later when they're in the land. And see you see the restoration taking place. So that's one part. That's one principle that we can actually look at and see as applied in the modern period. The second principle is, why would Cyrus, the, the emperor of the Persians, suddenly allow a group of people to go back to the very land where only 70 years before they'd rebelled against the authorities and the authorities had kicked them out? Had the character of the Jewish nation changed so much? Well, I doubt it but i think in in this instance we have to start looking at a bigger picture what i call god's geopolitical perspective you see there was a certain dynamic that occurred for centuries in that region and i call it the battle between the empires there was always an empire to the north of the land of israel be it the hittites mitites assyrians babylonians persians and there was always an empire to the south of the land of israel and that was egypt And there was always conflict between an empire to the north and the empire to the south. What's in between? The land of Israel. What's it known as geopolitically, therefore, or militarily, strategically, a buffer zone. So if you wanted if you're the Southern Empire and you wanted to keep um the Northern Empire at bay, you'd want to have some control over the land between empires, the land of Israel, and vice versa. And so if you look at it from that perspective, when Cyrus Receive that anointing and calling from God, which we see in Isaiah 45, then, yes, he comes in, he's the emperor of a great nation, and he wants to, um, um, well, he begins to actually then implement a policy to allow the Jewish people to go back to the land. But as an emperor, how is he going to fit that into sort of his uh, geopolitical scenario? You just don't make decisions as a leader unless it's based upon some real politics. Well, if we understand this this concept of the battle between the empires, well, he actually could have a people group, a group of people who could populate this land between empires, the Jewish people, who actually belonged to that area. So to save himself a garrison force, for instance. So it does fit into a nice little geopolitical package, you might say. And how is he going to be sure that they would um, uh, serve him, et cetera? Well, let them go back and worship God in their own way. And they'd feel, hey, this, this emperor of Persia, he really is a good bloke. And so that's what happened. They could rebuild a temple and worship the God in their own way. It wasn't plain sailing, okay, all the way through. Read through Ezra and Nehemiah, and you can see that. And the other important consideration is that only a remnant went back. Most of the Jewish people, the people of Israel, remained in Babylon. So if those that went back began to behave themselves, or voi, perhaps, to some of their family members who were back in Babylon. So there were other factors involved in that restoration, uh, which, again, we can see were, were principles which were very, very much relevant in the modern-day restoration as well. This context uh, of the battle between the empires and the land of Israel being a strategic buffer zone stuck right in the middle. And that's the very reason why our soldiers were at Be'er in 1917. It's because by that stage, the land of Israel was smack bang in the middle between Britain and Europe on one side and all the colonial and imperial areas down on the other side. And so the Axis went that way.
1: Let's hear from some callers. Let's take a call from Val in Mackay in Queensland. Hello, Val. Thanks for waiting so patiently.
3: That's okay.
1: Val, what are your Um, thoughts?
3: I believe Israel is for a sign and uh, what happens in Israel in the physical happens in the spiritual in the church. And as we see Israel in her battles and struggles uh, is a picture of the the spiritual battle that the church is involved in. And God said to Israel, uh, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And so we can take encouragement from that because uh, as we see Israel surviving and thriving, uh, it is prophetic of what the church uh, will be uh, or is and will become. And the restoration of Israel is a picture of the restoration of the church. Um, The Bible says that the heavens must retain Jesus until the times of the restoration of all things. And I believe we are in those times. Uh, Also, uh, the history of Israel and the festivals of Israel are also prophetic, like the festivals that God gave to Israel were memorials of uh, great things that he did in Israel. And they're also prophetic, of great things he's doing in the
1: church. Val, there are some wonderful thoughts in what you're sharing, and uh, you're taking us even deeper. Uh, Some thoughts from Kelvin for what Val's sharing.
2: Well, Val, you've touched on something very interesting here. You talk about the relationship between what's happening with the restoration of Israel and the restoration of the church. Um, I don't know how long I've got to answer this question, but um, perhaps I can just go back and just begin to look at some things, which some of these principles, which actually happen way back, which um, before there's a restoration, there has to first of all be an exile, because otherwise, what are we getting restored to and from? And so we know that at the time when Jesus came, Jesus came to, in a sense, institute that wonderful prophecy of Jeremiah called the the New Covenant. And in that wonderful prophecy, God's saying that he will institute a new covenant for forgiveness of sins um, with the nation of Israel. And they shall come to know him and have a personal relationship with him. But he also says there that they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. So there is a time for an initial institution of that wonderful new covenant through Jesus. There's also a time for a prophetic fulfillment, that they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Because that prophecy is for the nation of Israel. So we know that Jesus instituted the new covenant in the upper room, but there's never been a time when all Israel shall be saved, is what Romans 11.26 talks about. So there's, there's an eschatological aspect for the future. Now, after that initial period of time when the new covenant was instituted, it was all Jewish people initially that entered into that covenant relationship with Jesus. They were in covenant with Jesus. Uh, but we know that later Gentiles came in and soon the number of Gentiles actually superseded the number of, of Jewish people. And then we get to the time, of course, and from the fourth century onwards when the, the movement it was institutionalized and the Roman Catholic Church and Greek Orthodox Church began um, in, in that sort of same frame of, of time and slowly, slowly, the whole Jewish component was taken away, and you have this um, institutional church being established which didn't have much connection to its Jewish roots. And so there was an exile from the church, even if you look at it from that perspective. The church went into a sort of exile then, didn't it? Um, it was institutionalized, and it spread out in many different ways, but it was a church which was devoid of its Jewish foundations, its Jewish roots, the its Jewish... Um, aspect you might say and so whereas you had a physical exile of the Jewish people in that second uh, century period there was two revolts against the Romans and the second one finished in 135 AD so the Jewish people went into a national exile exile from their land but from about the fourth century you could almost say that the Gentile church was being exiled away from its Jewish foundations and so both of those exiles were sort of happening almost like in parallel tracks thereafter. And then we get to the 1600s, and we begin to see a bit of a restoration. Lots of things happen in the 1600s, and that's sort of a beginning point when I mentioned earlier on that um, the restoration of Israel didn't happen in, or begin on the 14th of May 1948. The restoration of Israel actually was taking place about 400 years before And so this restoration of Israel, the beginning point, I'd say, is in the late 1500s. And it's almost the same time as the church began to be restored. It's synonymous to the time of the Renaissance and the age of reconnaissance when the European powers began to go out and also the Reformation. So at the time of the Reformation, for instance, there were some people who began to read the scriptures and began to interpret the scriptures differently to how these scriptures had been interpreted by the Influence of the established church for all those centuries before, because they didn't see anything positive for Israel or Jewish people, or anything positive belonged to the Gentile church. Anything negative, well, the Jewish people can have that, um, basically. But it was in about 1560 that some of the uh, English uh, uh, reformers, or some of the English um, evangelicals of the time, the Puritans, were in exile in in um, in Geneva, and they began to read through Romans. And they got to Romans 11.26, and some of these people, one man's name was called Peter Martyr. His, his commentary on Romans 11.26 was that there's still a time in the future when the Jewish people will come to faith in Jesus. And that was almost like a beginning point, because until that point, there was nothing positive for the Jewish people. They were perpetually under God's curse. And now we actually had a few people saying, looking at Romans 26 as just one example, we're seeing something positive. Not all is bad and gloomy for the Jewish people. God's still going to rain his, um, pour his spirit out upon them. The dry bones are going to come to life and they will come to know Jesus. So from that point onwards, you see, it was happening in Europe as well through the, the Pietists and later the Moravians, but in England through the Puritans. Thereafter, from the late 1590s, more and more of these Puritans began to look at Romans, Romans 11.26, look at the other scriptures, Jeremiah 31, Genesis 12, and they began to see God has not forsaken the nation of Israel. So they began to write uh, more commentaries, and so if you, I've had the pleasure of looking some, through some of those books and pamphlets and reading the sermons from that period from 1590 onwards, and it is phenomenal. There was a restoration taking place in the church. Slowly, slowly, this Jewish component was being restored. The Jewish roots, you might say, were being restored. And as that began to happen, you actually then had the beginning point, you might say, of the modern-day intercessor as there had been the intercessory work of Moses, reminding God of his covenant promises and his oath, and then later of Daniel and, of course, Nehemiah. Now you had people all over Europe and Britain looking at God's word, saying, hey, God, you swore an oath. It's about time it was beginning to be fulfilled. So I see there is a correlation between the restoration of the church and the restoration of Israel happening progressively from the 1600s onwards.
1: Well, thank you so much to Val from Mackay for calling in because uh, you got a detailed answer there. And uh, Val, you did spark uh, some good thoughts about what's happening with the nation of Israel and the connection there to the Christian church. We are taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Chris in Victoria. Hello, Chris. Welcome along.
3: Uh, good day uh, Neil and Kelvin. Yeah, I, I just see this... Um the embassy moved to Jerusalem as a very significant and a catalyst for like end time prophecy that could come very quickly, like the the Gog Magog war, the rapture, the building of the second temple, um, you know, and also um, the time of Jacob's trouble, because you know people like Donald Trump are not peacemakers. The Jews will have Jacob's trouble because they reject the Prince of Peace and the Gospel of Peace, you know, and the Bible says blessed are the peacemakers. You're talking about those who spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, not, you know, people like Donald Trump as such, yeah.
1: Okay, Chris, good thoughts and uh, controversial insofar as what's happened this week, in fact, just on the 14th of May, as being some sort of a catalyst for other end times events that we might look at from biblical prophecy. Your response for Chris, Kelvin?
2: Uh, Chris, it's not really my area, to be very frank with you, um, about. Uh, what's happening in these particular days and Jacob's trouble, etc., etc. All I can say is that through these events, um, hopefully it will actually generate the average person on the ground to begin to realize there has to be something out there, some answer that is bigger and broader and more uh, substantial, you might say, than what politicians are trying to put together. My desire through the embassy moving to Jerusalem and all the other events, is that average Jewish and Muslim people in the Middle East will begin to actually search for who is the Prince of Peace. Uh, I personally am not particularly that interested in the rebuilding of the temple and all those things associated with it. Um, I really, really would like Christians to be praying for ordinary Muslims and Jewish people in the Middle East to come to know Jesus. Um, So... I'm probably not the best person to sort of engage so much on all these end-time scenarios.
1: Thank you so much to Chris from Victoria for your insights. 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to join in our conversation, you can also leave a comment on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash vision radio. When we talk about all of these events, and as you say, Kelvin, you can get caught up in almost an entertainment about biblical prophecy. And yet the way that we would want to think of things as they unfold in the end times is that it's all about a restoration of who Jesus is. This idea of Jesus as Messiah, the first exile and first restoration, making way for Jesus to be born. A second exile and a second restoration paving the way for a Jesus return when we talk about the overall plan that God might have, uh, his uh, purposes on the earth, how do we talk about that uh, in relation to God being sovereign? God is overall.
2: Well, sovereignty of God is an incredibly important subject
1: um, because
2: if you look at it, he looks down from above and he can see all the different scenarios, all the different things happening um, from a high point. And we as human beings, we can't. We're limited in what we can see and how much we can see and, and, and take in. And the very nature of us human beings often is that we get parochial. We, we lock into one particular thing or subject. Well, God just sees absolutely everything. And I think that we really just need to recognize that God is sovereign. He's on the throne. He has everything in the palm of his hand. And we sometimes we have to be perhaps less dogmatic and a little, little bit more open to saying, okay, well, we've got a certain perspective, but... God is sovereign after all and you know He may, his purposes may very well prevail. When I can remember at the time when the Berlin Wall went down, etc. And that took a lot of people by surprise. Everybody thought they had it all worked out. I've actually heard messages that the Russians were going to be in Berlin in such and such a time. Well, nothing of that happened. The Berlin Wall goes down. And it took a lot of people, even intercessors, a bit by surprise. So God's sovereignty is, is just so far above uh, all of our, our understandings and I think an important principle to look at when it comes to looking at God's sovereignty over Israel, Israel's destiny, is what happened on the Mount of Olives, as recorded for us in Acts 1, when the disciples asked if Jesus was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. I mean, they thought it was going to happen either then or there or in their lifetime, that the purposes of God would prevail over the nation of Israel. And Jesus didn't knock them down. He didn't say, hey, you guys have got it wrong. God doesn't have a destiny for Israel anymore. And basically what Jesus said is that um, those things are in in the in the will of God. It's in God's timing. But your purpose is to take the message out to the uttermost parts of the world. And I think we actually have to somehow take take wind of this, take grasp of this. He has given us a priority call, and that is to go out and introduce Jesus to people. Um, from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, in the uttermost ends of the world. That is our primary task as the church. Now, when it comes to the restoration of Israel, yeah, we see things in Scripture, but we cannot allow that to be the be-all and end-all. We can't allow that to be the main focus um, for our uh, existence as Christians. We're always going to make sure that our main and primary goal is to take the message of Jesus out and secondarily take into account the prophecies, etc., concerning the restoration of Israel, the rebuilding of the temple, and all these sorts of things. We do believe, I mean, for instance, at that stage in the, on the Mount of Olives, um, you had the, the angels coming along. Why are you staring into heaven? This same Jesus shall return in like manner. So he will return, and he will return to Jerusalem, that we know. That's our great hope. But in the meantime, our commission is to take the message of Jesus out, to all peoples, and we have to never lose sight of that.
0: Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events.
1: Time running short. Kelvin Crombie is our guest. We've been talking about the nation of Israel in biblical prophecy. Kelvin, as we draw some loose ends together, uh, I know that uh, we we, we began to talk about uh, Israel, its restoration, Uh, and we began to link to the church. If we're talking about things and how we might finish our conversation, drawing some loose ends together, as Christians listening to this conversation, we don't feel like we're outside the picture because God has his faithfulness, his promises for Christians as well.
2: Yeah, Most certainly. Um, We sort of left off just a while ago um, talking about the beginnings of the Reformation and You know, the Reformation last year sort of had its 500th anniversary of the official beginnings. but We know things were happening beforehand anyway. But the great thing about the Reformation is it availed the scriptures for the ordinary person to begin to read. And some people might say well, that was a mistake because you have probably about 400 Protestant denominations now where that might not have been the case yeah. <laughs> if they hadn't had access to the scriptures. But put that to the side, the fact of the matter is that people now had a chance to read the scriptures for themselves and they began to see all these wonderful um purposes of God. They saw the sovereignty of God. Israel was in exile, but the scriptures say they will come back. And I think as people began to, to see this and began to pray, Uh, Suddenly, a whole dimension began to open up for them. Jesus was Jewish. What does that mean? So from the 1600s into the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, it was just a slow, gradual process. And I think that's extremely important because Jesus was, yes, a son of God, but he's a son of man. He was actually fully divine, but also fully human. Okay, so who was he in the flesh? He was Jewish. He didn't stop being Jewish. And it was very, very important for Gentile Christians to begin to, to see the fact that this Jesus is actually Jewish. But hang on, all those Jewish people in the ghetto, they're under God's curse. So how do we reconcile this? And I'm actually in covenant with a person who's Jewish, a circumcised Jew, and yet over there, there's people, his very own flesh and blood, who have been persecuted. So it actually began to be a, a challenge for people in the church. They never had to worry about that before because they never really saw Jesus as a Jew. But suddenly when they begin to see Jesus as a Jewish person, that began to change their understanding towards his own people according to the flesh. So, you know, in the 1800s, more and more people wanted to go out to, to reach the Jewish people with the message of Jesus, to introduce their Messiah to them. Instead of him being the Gentile Messiah called Jesus, come and believe and be converted and leave your Jewishness at the door and become one of us, Suddenly, there was a beginning of a change. And we see this in the 1800s, as more and more Jewish people were being introduced to Jesus and being encouraged to keep at least some of their Jewishness. Okay? And then more and more Jewish people began to come to faith. The Hebrew Christian movement, later the Messianic Jewish movement. It didn't begin in 1979 when people regard that as being sort of the starting point of the Messianic movement in Israel. That was an important part of it but actually had foundations going way, way, way back, and it was a slow, gradual process. So I see, in a sense, the restoration of the church being very, very much associated with the restoration of Israel, but in this key area of who is Jesus in the flesh. He's a Jew, and so one day he will return to Jerusalem as the king of the
1: the Jews. So there's a lot of correlation there. And for a lot of listeners, this will be... New ideas. Who is this guy sharing these new ideas? Uh, Kelvin Crumbie, you've written a whole bunch of books. And for people who are interested in the writings of Kelvin Crumbie, uh, vision.org.au, you can go to the Vision store and uh, they'll be available there. The sorts of things we're talking about today, which book would people read some of these things the way you've articulated these things today, Kelvin? Because for a lot of people, they'll be going, wow, I've never heard this before. I need to know some more.
2: Oh, I'm not a good advocate of my own stuff, but probably the book uh, Israel,
1: Jesus, and Covenant would cover most of those subject matters. Israel, Jesus, and Covenant. You can go to Vision Store at vision.org.au. You'll find a link to the store there. You'll be able to search for Kelvin Crombie. You'll see all of his books and uh, keep an eye out for Israel Jesus and Covenant. And let me point those southeast Queensland listeners to the seminar that you'll be speaking at this weekend. It's called the Israel Restoration Seminar and for uh, listeners in southeast Queensland, northern New South Wales in reach of getting to get some really great substance when it comes to how the Bible prophecy interacts with what's happening today in the world. Uh, you can see Kelvin Crombie, there's another guest speaker too, Cookie Shwebar Isan and they That is on in Wynnum West. Uh, Simply Google the Israel Restoration Seminar. Kelvin, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with us today on 2020.
2: Thank you, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Before you
0: go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au And remember, Vision is listener supported.